Welcome to episode 60 of The Photo Show with today's guest, Katie Klein. This episode sponsored by the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media, chaired by Charles Traub. Katie's a photographer based in California, but she was in New York last December to catch up with friends, but also to present at the Marble Hill Camera Club. That is uh, definitely something you've heard me talk about before. It's run by Patrice Helmar. It's a fantastic show, uh, an evening filled with a a lot of different artists, uh, all presenting one after the other. Um, And now it's also being held at a place called Gotcha Hall in Ridgewood, Queens. It's this really interesting bar and event space. It has a a really interesting history. Uh, The Gotchis apparently were uh, people from uh, the region now known as Slovenia. Um, And you can read about their history on the website gotchahall.com. But more importantly... (laughs) Uh, you should come try to visit, uh, you know, a Marble Hill Camera Club event if you are in New York or you're going to be around New York anytime soon. Uh, once again, it's just a, a great way to see a lot of different artists. Um, so I was not able to attend the event that Katie presented at, uh, but Kai McBride was and he is on the show with me today. I was able to attend just a few days ago with another great lineup. But uh, I was there with Jen Davis, and just a reminder, the reception for Jen's show at the JKC Gallery is on January 31st from 5 to 8 p.m., and that is posted at the photoshow.org website. Jen will be speaking around 5.30, and then she'll be signing some of her books 11 years uh, after the talk. So come by if you can. So the other reason Katie Klein was in New York was uh, so that she could be on the show. Uh, Katie's actually been listening to the show since it started. And I remember we had some early correspondence uh, after I had posted some photos of me soldering a new switch onto my uh, Nikon scanner. Uh, She has the same scanner at a high school that she teaches at. um, And she was just wondering um, if maybe we had the same problem and I could I had a bunch of extra switches. So I think I think that actually does come up on the show. Uh, But more importantly, like I said, Katie's a a high school photography teacher. And this this uh, episode was recorded just uh, maybe a few weeks after an article came out in The New York Times about teaching darkroom photography uh, in high school. And that is something you've heard me speak about with different guests on the show. This this whole idea of um, slowing the process down, sort of raising the the stakes of the process where you kind of have to get everything right along the way. And the, the beauty of seeing, you know, your images appear in this tray of liquid in the dark and how that, how that has become so different from working on a computer and, and processing your photographs on a computer. And believe me, I do that. So I'm not saying, you know, that there's anything wrong with that, you know, but in terms of, you know, learning photography and learning how to see and how to use the camera, uh, there's just something about really having to pay attention to every step along the way and not really knowing what you what you're going to end up with until you're in the darkroom. I still think it's a it's a great way to teach photography. Uh, So we do talk about that on this episode, as well as Katie's work and the influence of Disney (laughs) in her work. Oh, and just a note, uh, Kai uh, comes into the episode a little bit after we start in a, a funny moment that you'll hear. Uh, but uh, then Kai just sort of jumps right in. All right, well, enjoy the show, everyone, and we'll talk soon. How long are you in from 
uh, California. I'm here for three more days and like five total. Well, actually, what, what brings you to New York? Do you have family out here or is it, no. or is it just a more of like a art friend visit? Exactly. So um, I grew up in Los Angeles where I live now. I went to NYU at 18. I applied early decision to the photo department and um, didn't really consult my parents at all. <laughs> you know, we haven't, uh, I have not spoken to a lot of photographers from the NYU program. Oh, okay. What is that program like? Well, I don't have a whole lot to compare it to. However, how I can best describe it is most of my school experiences, I feel like I've been incredibly lucky. Each time I've been in school, I've fallen in with a great class and a really great community of people. So the big takeaway for me from the NYU Tisch photo program was that I still am friends with many of my classmates and we're still collaborating. And the community, I think, was the best part of it for me. But that isn't the case with most classes, as you probably know. You can can fall into a crummy class of people, but I feel like both at NYU and Columbia, I was with a good batch. So, uh, Kai just walked <clears throat> in. Hi, Kai. Good morning, Kai. <laughs> I have dog shit on the bottom of my shoe. All right. Uh, do you need to take care of that? Well, <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank We're just you. talking about NYU. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. But, you know, De- uh, Deborah Willis is the chair of the department. Um, she wasn't when I was a student, but she was faculty. And I feel like having... She's a natu- she's a national treasure. And, yes, um, absolutely. I would love being... to have Deborah Willis on the show. Oh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'll spread the word. Oh, thank See you. See if I can help with that. Yes. And I've become closer to her after graduating. Um, as I taught, I was adjunct faculty there for um, a couple of years, right around the time I was at Columbia. So, yeah, Deb Willis, Lori Novak, Erica DeVries, and Phil Perkis, Tom Drysdale are all people that I worked with there that had a huge impact mm. and are all very different in their own practice and brought something, each brought something unique to the table. At the time I was there, there was still a big focus on fine art photography as your as your path. But since then, I feel like they've really expanded their faculty, um, especially to include like multimedia and video, photojournalism, Joseph Rodriguez is there. Mm, wow. And others that I'm I'm forgetting right now, but yeah. but to the point, and like Mark Jenkinson who teaches um, a lot of commercial skills. So, as a high school teacher now, I do encourage my students to go to my alma mater if um, they have kind of a broad interest in photography and aren't really sure what path they want to take yet. Yeah, and and of course we're at the School of Visual Arts, and and that's my alma mater too. Yes. And <laughs> I imagine you have this conversation with students as I do is. is the cost, versus yes, absolutely. <laughs> and the, the benefits of oh, going to a, a you know a, a sort of a name brand institution and to be in New York and all the benefits of those things. Yeah. Uh, also, student loans and debt and things oh, like geez. that. It's the worst. Yeah. And you know, it's kind of I feel conflicted because I you know I teach at a school that has a very affluent population, so a lot of students are able to mm. afford to go, and so. I feel uh, like I can honestly encourage them to go to New York City. Right, right. But I'm also very realistic with my students because 
you know, I, when I left a part of the reason that I left is because it didn't, it wasn't going to be sustainable, especially because my husband and I want to start a family mm. and there's just no way without family support and the, and the career, the careers we were um, <laughs> embarking on, um, as, as we're both artists. So the, uh, the low forecast of uh, making it right out of school. <laughs> yes. Yes. But all that to say, like, I feel really fortunate that I was here from age 20 or 18 to 31, 32. Yeah. And I grew up here as an adult and New York will forever be incredibly important. And my visits here will be very sentimental. And so going back to your first question, yeah, that's why I'm here is because I spent so much time here. And um, I really built a family here, a community of photographers, friends, and colleagues. So, you know, one of the things that um, about NYU, I just want to jump back to that a little bit. Sure. Is, you know, that, that, is, that is something that comes up, like what's the character of a program? And so mm-hmm. you, you said now there's a, a bit more interest in photojournalism. And, and I always thought NYU had a, a photojournalism sort of programmer interest. Mm-hmm. But, you know, things come and go and they, they ebb and flow. And, yeah, and I think the program has expanded a lot since I was there from 01 to 05. And you really, the the faculty to student ratio was um, small enough that you could really just choose who you were working with. And then, I hate to say it, but I don't know if I was really aware of what else yeah, was going on. Right, right. So one of the pe- one of the other people that I worked with was, was really important for me was Yolanda Cuomo, um, who's a major um, photo book designer here in New York City. She used to be the art director for Aperture before they did the big re- redesign. That's, that's where I know the name, yes. Yeah, yeah. and and so I, I worked as her assistant for about a year, a year and a half after I graduated. Mm. That was an incredible experience. And I like kind of kick myself regularly for not staying there longer. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, oh, I, I do have to jump back to, to one other thing yeah. because that you said, it, it struck me as funny. You said you went to NYU and didn't tell your parents? Oh, well, I... <laughs> I told my parents I was applying, but it was that I, I told them it wasn't really a conversation. And I had never been to New York City and I applied early decision. I don't know if my mom had really been to New York City, except for maybe when she was a small child on a road trip. And um, my dad, only a limited amount of time as well. So it was it was a big leap. And and I got in, and then that year during spring break, we went to to see the school, and I'm very grateful that it all worked out. <laughs> and you got mugged, and what else yeah, happened? Yeah, everything. No, <laughs> um, no, it was totally dreamy. But I did start school, um, you know, August 2001. So my first so my first week of school was September 11th. Oh yeah. So that was that was huge. Yeah, that and must have scared the hell out of your <laughs> yeah, parents. Exactly. Yeah. Um, especially because you couldn't get in touch. Mm-hmm. I think I finally told them that I was okay through like an AOL IM. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this and this is coming back to what you had said earlier. I wanted to go to school for photography because I wanted to be a National Geographic photographer, like many young people. Um, my family had subscribed to the magazine since like my my grandparents, so we had tons of issues at home. And uh, and that day on September 11th, when I was photographing, I, I realized that this was not my path of being a brand new person to New York City, experiencing something so devastating to the population. Um, I felt completely out of place, 
and that it wasn't my story to tell. And it just, I wasn't cut out for that kind of work Mm. or interested. So, and it took me a long time to realize that. But now that like kind of like looking back at my negatives, which I still haven't done anything with, but I'm like almost ready to maybe share them with my students at some point. And so, of course, two years into your experience at NYU, something very hap- important happened, right? I'm totally not following you. Oh, really? You just posted on Instagram like that in 2003. Oh, yes, okay. Uh, my husband. Yes. Oh, oh man. <laughs> Wait, let's, can we, yeah, I'll can try we start again. that over a different way? Yeah, I'll try again. You're very kind. I think you would get a kick out of it being the first way, but we can do it the second way too. Oh, let's leave it then. Okay, yeah, yeah, right, I'll leave it. I'll blame it on the pregnancy brain, I guess. Well, there, there's um, another announcement. Yeah. We just broke some more news. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So Katie, so, six months pregnant. It's true. Six months pregnant, losing her voice yep. just yep. in time for the show. Great. It's baby's first trip to New York. And baby's, baby's first, first podcast. podcast. Yes. And yeah, so my husband and I have been together for, it will be 15 years, which is like really hard to believe. We started dating when we were 20 at NYU. And I think, you know, that goes back again to the community that I built there. Nicholas Calcott being someone else who spoke at the Marble Hill Camera Club on Saturday night alongside me. Um, was my first friend in New York in the photo department. And um, we've remained really close since. And he's an editorial photographer, shoots a lot for T Magazine, and is totally making it. As nice. like a, as a photographer making a living making a living off of making <laughs> photographs as opposed to the rest of us who teach to exactly. make a living <laughs> um, so I'm super proud of him and it's always it's always really cool to see his work in print and um, I share that with my students often as well we'll, we'll get into um, teaching but I, I missed the the Marble Hill talk very sorry but uh, Kai did not how did it go um I thought it went really well. Of course, Marble Hill by run by our friend Patrice Helmar. Yeah, and Marble Hill Camera and Supper Club, although now the Marble Hill part is really in Ridgewood, Queens, and Supper Club part is you go downstairs and order huge pretzels at Gotcha Hall Bar. So <laughs> exactly. it's morphed over the years. I will get there. Yeah. 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 Well, I f- yeah, I felt really fortunate to have the opportunity to just participate and experience the other photographers' uh, talks as well because Patrice started this program right after we I graduated because she was a year behind. And then um, I moved to L.A. right after I graduated. So I've been watching that and, the, and listening to this podcast from afar and feeling like I'm still connected. That's great. Uh, That's really nice to hear. And now a power thanks. weekend. You get to do both, yeah. right? Hence, hence losing my voice, I think. Yeah, so no I doubt. apologize to the it sounds fine. listeners. I think I'll be more likely to listen to this episode if it doesn't really sound like me. Yeah, <laughs> right? that's true. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a famous song, and of course I'm not going to remember, but uh, this guy had booked in to go do a recording, and uh, he, you know, he almost never got recording time, so it was like a big deal for him, and he lost his voice just about to the extent you did, but he went anyways and sang the song, and we know the song and love, like, everyone loves it for this, like, you know, you know, rattly, you know, sandpaper Excellent. voice. 
And so that's that's what you'll just be known as from, from here on out to our, our, our listeners. Fantastic. But uh, I thought that you did a great job with the slideshow, and uh, it would, some of it was work I had seen and some I hadn't mm-hmm. seen. And I'm sure we'll talk about your Instagram account because I thought it was smart the way you talked about how you use that platform. Yeah, thank um, you. But uh, some other things that came out and uh, I thought I wanted to, to jump into is uh, first of all your father's background uh, working at Disney yeah. and then uh, how that played into your like conception of creative life and everything else? Yeah, absolutely. My father's an amazing artist and started when he was um, a child like drawing dinosaurs and in his retirement has also used Instagram as a platform to like organize and share the work that he's made over his lifetime. Do you want to promote your father's Instagram? Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> I th- Oh, shoot. Now I don't remember oh, we'll exactly get it. what we'll it is. It. Okay, yeah, cool. We'll it's it. either Robert Klein or Bob Klein. But he just... Uh, he just posted a painting that he did in high school of a brontosaurus that I think is particularly special, especially being around high school students all the time now. But um, anyway, his career, because he was such a, a fan of Disney movies growing up, he was born in 46, was mostly at Disney and TV animation, but he was in some other at some other studios as well, Warner Brothers and Filmation, and um, the list goes on. But all that to say, when I was growing up, my dad would often come home from work and complain about his job and working as a commercial artist under the control of executives that didn't really understand the art and um, often uh, pushed him to make decisions he didn't want to make creatively. I knew from a young age that I didn't want to be a commercial photographer necessarily. Um, because it just sounded miserable to work for people who were interested in profit uh, wielding only and not really interested as their employees as artists. I was going to yeah. ask you about that, that because of that, did you grow up? So, you know, when, when I was in art school, which is long before the two of you were as an undergrad, there was a real anti-Disney sort of a, you know, feeling, especially among graphic designers at the School of Visual Arts because they were known as the, you know, the the organization that would uh, sue you for the, you know, the first sign of some kind of copyright infringement. You get a cease and desist letter, you know, and and they were, you know, fairly well hated, even though they were also the one of the biggest job providers Mm -hmm. as well uh, for graphic designers. Um, Did did you grow up with that sentiment in some ways? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that on one hand, and then really loving Disney um, movies and right. characters on the other hand. Like because my dad worked for the company, um, we had a pass, so I could go to Disneyland like every week after school. My mom would take me for free. So, and then you know they also offered at the time a scholarship for employees, kids who were pursuing um, education in the arts. So um, I received a 50% scholarship for whatever college I wanted to go to for all four years, which it enabled me also to go to NYU. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I can't, I can't get too angry. <laughs> no. Right? Can't look the gift horse in a mouth. Go, Disney, but, go. Disney. Yeah, right. um, but uh, well, but well, it's part complicated. Of, <laughs> part of my point was this, there is a kind of rehabilitation of Disney. Yeah. Um, you know, they've, they've become such a media conglomerate mm-hmm. of, 
of everything, you yeah. know. They're, well, especially if this Fox merger oh, goes Fox through. Oh, Fox merger. And, yeah. and, of course, Pixar. And, yeah. you know, they... You know, they're one of the smartest corporations out there next to maybe Coca-Cola in terms of having to, you know, not relying on a, just a single product or things like that and having constantly having to create new things. Like, you know, they're not Exxon, right? They just can't rely on oil, right? right. And, and it's just, it's, they're an interesting phenomena. And there's, um, yeah. you know, yeah. But anyway, I grew up with Disney World and you grew up with Disneyland. Yes, <laughs> which my husband often confuses because he grew up in a, like, no Disney household. <laughs> Faux pas um, when yeah. he says the wrong thing. And I've dragged him <laughs> way too many times. It's like, so, you know. Um, but anyway, I I think that, you know, being around that, around my father's art, and also growing up in Southern California really um, impacted the way in which I was interested in looking at the world and the things that I was interested in looking at, um, specifically artifice and these kind of man-made structures that are meant to look natural, these kind of optical illusions and ways to make our world seem a little bit more better than it really is. But so, the, yeah, the kind of theme park aesthetic is something I've always been interested in as a photographer. Yeah, that's clear in your work. And uh, going back uh, to the stuff you were showing from your Instagram account, you were mm -hmm. seeing a lot of that facade come across, right? Yeah, just walking around L.A., which really makes me happy to be back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can get flashbacks to all kinds of things there, all kinds of movies and everything else, just exactly. walking down the street. Yeah. Uh, but there was another thing you said uh, about a comment from, some, uh, from your father that I thought was really great, which was, uh, when you sort of announced that you were interested in photography, or maybe this was even when you were in high school, yeah, and and, it was. Uh, and uh, do you, can you relay that story about? Absolutely, I knew that I wanted to be creative very young, and my father tried to teach me how to draw and paint, and it was really tedious for me because I f I didn't really feel like I had a knack for it, and so it was something I did not want to practice, and so he let me borrow his Pentax K1000 and I shot my first roll of slide film on a trip up to Mammoth and we stopped in, gosh, I think it's Red Rock Canyon, but I, that could be the wrong name. But anyway, I was photographing big red rocks in the <laughs> desert with blue sky and like just loving it. And, um, and so that's when I really discovered photography was through my dad and but once I did, he would always um, shame me if I didn't have my camera on my shoulder or around my neck. And I was like, you, you can't be good at this if you don't have your camera with you at all times. So um, I try to pass that along to my students as well. And it's nice to see a bunch of them roaming around campus with their 35 millimeter cameras. <laughs> Yeah. So you have mentioned your, your students a few times in teaching. And where do you teach? I teach at Campbell Hall Episcopal. When I was a student there, it was just Campbell Hall, but they've since added the Episcopal. <laughs> was yeah. that a, a merger with Episcopalians yeah, or what happened? it's always been an Episcopal <laughs> <Okay>. school. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm teaching at the school that I went to K through 12. Wow. Yeah. So it's a real homecoming in a lot of ways. Many of my teachers um, are still working there and are now my colleagues the high school principals, my supervisor was my English teacher, Wow, Carolyn Legale, <laughs> which is really wonderful in a lot of ways. I think it was a bit awkward in the beginning, 
But, I'm, well, you yeah. were saying that you thought it was a little <laughs> embarrassing, like you're yeah. going back to high school, like here you are, you oh, went off to the big city, <laughs> Exactly. you got your MFA from Columbia University, yeah. and now you're, it's like, welcome All back, Cotter. Back. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know if how many of our listeners hey, will guys. get that reference. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. So yeah, and all of a sudden, here you are, going back to high school. Going back to high school, and um, the uniforms are the same. <laughs> I get teased because I'm I'm pretty adament about enforcing the uniform and I'm just trying to follow. What, what the does rule. that mean? <laughs> what do you have to do? Um, you just give uniform infractions if the students are out of uniform and uh, several add up to a detention. What um? Wow. What are what are some <laughs> of the adaptations that students are making? You're required to wear a polo shirt which I will never wear a polo shirt again as long as I live. <laughs> and so often students will hide the fact that they're not wearing a polo shirt under a sweatshirt or oh. something like that, a check for the collar. Or they'll just wear a sweatshirt that's not in uniform, that's like, you know, Supreme um, brand <laughs> or like Rihanna's latest oh, yeah. sweatshirt or <laughs> something like that. That's funny. Yeah. So what, what age range do you teach? I teach um, grades 9 through 12, so 14 to 18. I have few ninth graders, though. I only have two this year. Photography is a pretty popular elective, so I usually have mostly 10 through 12. Hmm. And Is I, it a full dark room and all that? And yeah, it's a full dark room. Right now I have 10 enlargers, but hoping to expand a little bit could probably fit 12 in if I do a few adjustments. (laughs) I have usually 15 or 16 students in the class. Nice. So it's a good ratio for getting work done. Yeah, you got lucky. They completely revamped the facility right before you got the job, right? Yeah. um, It was a big reason why I took the job. When I was there and up until they built this new building, the darkroom was a converted uh, tool shed or like storage shed. And... um, my experience of the dark room at Campbell Hall when I was in high school was uh, sneaking underneath the enlarger station to take a nap or just having like way too many kids in there to actually get anything done. So like a lot of sloppy <laughs> printing, a lot of chemical stains mm-hmm. and a lot of, you know, goofing around. Yeah. And um, now that we have this... A lot of uniform infractions. I was going to say, how many times were you out of uniform? Not that often. I was really afraid of getting in trouble in high school. And I feel like I saved up all of that energy for the moment that I moved to New York City and then started getting tattoos and, you know, Uh the whole, whole spectrum from there, you know. Do you, do you also teach digital then? I teach one semester of digital. I really prefer teaching in the dark room and um, but the students want that. I the parents want that too, but I think I don't feel that that much pressure, which I feel really grateful from either administration or parents at this point. I feel like I really have the freedom to teach whatever I want. Nice. Um, well, the New York Times just had a great article on yes. how high school photography is, it's, black it's and white photography is. It's in my classroom me, me on too. the wall. Yeah. And, um, and that's, uh, that's great that you bring it up because that was a program that I used to work with here in New York City through ICP between undergrad and grad school. Um, I worked at the International Center of Photography in the Community Programs Department. 
I was running the Teen Academy program, which is their after-school darkroom program for teenagers that is in the school at ICP. But in addition, in community programs, they also have the partnership with the high school of fashion industries, which they mentioned in the article, as well as ICP at the Point in the South Bronx. Hmm. That was an amazing experience to work with that program. And I learned so much about working with young people and young people from a a diverse range of socioeconomic backgrounds, which was, I think, particularly helpful in thinking about going back to the school where um, I went to and now teach. Yeah. You know, we we don't speak to a lot of high school teachers, but we hear from a lot of photographers how they were inspired by their high school teachers Uh, to this day, still, you know, very much keep in touch with them or, you know, uh, um, they followed their careers. The high school teachers followed their careers. And, you know, Rachel Stern teaches uh, high school kids, I think. Yeah, she teaches in our summer high school <laughs> yeah. class at Columbia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's great. Yeah. yeah. I was super inspired by her episode early on of the podcast. And because I moved right after I graduated from Columbia, Rachel and I didn't have the chance to be in in New York at the same time, really. And so... It was great to hear her experience, and it took away a few nuggets yeah. from her from her talk. Yeah, and you know, you said um, it was great to get that experience with diversity and all. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, uh, I teach at community college, and we have all kinds of diversity, which the listeners are, have already heard me talk about. But uh, you know, economic diversity yeah. as well as academic diversity, mm-hmm. uh, racial diversity. Absolutely. Um, so. You you mentioned earlier that that your students are are fairly affluent, yeah. mostly affluent, but, but that doesn't negate, again, the other kinds of diversity, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I'm impressed that the school has made major efforts to be more diverse in the student population since I graduated. It's a bigger school now, too, but also just walking around campus, um, it looks more diverse on the surface and also... They're offering more financial aid and scholarships, so still not a perfect balance. And, you know, the more you read into um, education models and types of schools, you know, is there really ever a perfect balance that people are trying so many different ways and combinations? But all that to say, I'm feeling really optimistic and I hope that the school will stay on that path of inclusion. And I'm just recently successfully showed my students the talk that Lauren Greenfield gave at ICP. I love that they record their, their artist talks. And so they're great classroom aides, I think, you know, to, to show your students a lecture. But the Lauren Greenfield talk was specifically important in this body of work, Generation Wealth. Um, I was kind of uh, frightened to show my students because I wasn't sure how they would react for many of them just holding up a mirror to what their lives look like in some cases. And it, it really sparked interesting conversation and some students became very interested then in trying to document similarly the affluence that's around them and you know you just go to the parking lot at my school and the student parking lot is filled with bmws and maseratis and mercedes and the list goes on and you know i'm driving like a 2003 mini cooper that's like <laughs> barely barely going so 
It's it's interesting and it and it's something that I think about a lot in terms of what material I'm showing my students and um, so that they can be aware of what's outside of this bubble that they live in that's very protected and comfortable and um, provides its own set of problems. And what I was alluding to before too is just because they do come from affluent families and they do have a certain amount of privilege. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that they ha- are also coming in fully prepared to be students and fully yeah. uh, capable oh of boy. accepting criticism and, yes. and capable of, you know, of uh, uh, acknowledging their own weaknesses and all the things that you need to do to grow as an artist, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a big reason why darkroom photography works really well at my school is because it's very frustrating students really have to fall flat on their face many times and fail before they succeed and um, develop patience and 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 yeah and that's just one way of kind of of working through that but it's interesting I think a lot about how much parenting plays a role and when you have uh, the means to have tutors and people taking care of your children and helping them at every point, holding their hand at every point, you know, what does that really make for success? And I, I hope in my classroom I kind of like push them to, to fall down <laughs> and stumble a little bit. Mm-hmm. Add in some anxiety, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, oh God, it's like the number one. Did the film ailment. come out? Yeah, exactly. And most often it does. Thanks to Kai's videos that I show on how to properly load film into a camera, <laughs> load film onto Patterson reels. The um, admissions, uh, director of admissions who gives tours, he, he loves to say that once I was in this classroom and they were showing a YouTube video on how to put film into an analog camera. <laughs> Isn't this crazy? <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's how you that's how you make it work. But it's great when you have you can like project it really big and you can see up close how to do because the fine motor skills are also challenged in a lot of ways now with young people and they're not making things with their hands and yeah. Their swiping skills are very good. Yes. <laughs> Texting and swiping. The yeah. thumbs, great. But all the rest of the fingers, yeah. not so good. Challenged, challenged. Yeah. And one thing I want to talk about work and uh, your work and something that struck me is, uh, I think I've mentioned in the past how when I was in art school, I became suspicious of uh, photographing people just because people would react to the photographs and they would like them whether or not they were they liked the people, if they were attracted to the people in the photographs. Yeah. And even recently I did uh, uh, 30 days of November, I posted 35 millimeter negative that photographs. Yeah. And, um, and overwhelmingly the ones that had people in them got the most likes, you yeah. know? And so when I was in art school, I made this decision, like, I'm not going to photograph people for a while. I'm just going to do landscapes, like, you know, and mm-hmm. see if I can get photographs that work that don't have people in them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know we, you and I have spoken about that in the past, but you were also speaking about just even reluctance to photograph people and how a lot of your work is mostly, you know, constructed landscapes and things like that. Do you want to speak about that and, and how it motivates you and how that comes out in your work? Yeah, I think 
also like many young photographers you're attracted to photographing people in the beginning and I'm remembering now that I was and it's it's one of my biggest challenges as an educator is teaching portraiture because that's what kids really are drawn to and so to guide them in the correct ways without really practicing it is something that I'm kind of working on, but I'll get to that in a so minute. The, the three Kardashian rules, that's what you're teaching. Oh, gee, of course. <laughs> it's LA. <laughs> so I, you know, early on was interested in photographing women and questioning feminism when I was an undergrad, you know, and like I was really influenced by Helmut Newton and like taking like kind of like fashion-esque photos of my girlfriends doing like household tasks and stuff. And like, this is really good undergrad art. Mm. And then also like I did a whole series of self-portraits where I was like a soap opera character, very Cindy Sherman. And like, uh, but I had uh, died from all of these different deaths, um, some self-inflicted and some accidental. And um, so I kind of worked through that really quickly. <laughs> and then. That's <clears throat> a good process. Yeah. And then I felt like, yeah, what I was more interested in were seeing people through what they leave behind or what they make or how they outfit their spaces that they habitate. And I just started doing that and doing that and doing that and doing that and getting better at it or finding different approaches and using different tools. And I think I'm almost at the end of that now. And I'm starting to rethink portraiture. But a big reason why I stayed away from making portraits of people is I felt like I could never quite show the whole the whole person. You can never show the whole person. And you're really just showing this surface. And I feel like I'm taking from someone um, in a lot of ways, especially when photographing strangers or people I don't know very well. So being back at home, being around my family that's very close, um, especially the women in my family, very close, but there is a lot of layers of complexity there. I'm really motivated to make portraits of the women in my family. And I think that's also like thinking about becoming a mom too. And I think about Eleanor Carucci and a lot of other friends of mine who once they became mothers really started photographing their families. And I'm, I have my, in my hands, I'm like totally willing to go there. Um, <laughs> tis the time. And yeah, I think that will feel more appropriate somehow. Who knows if it'll work. It might just look like everybody else's photographs of their family, but mm. But it, so it was more of like this uh, aversion to the objectification that you think you steered yeah, away from it. Yeah, absolutely. And this, you know, the pinned butterfly and just pointing at something that's like beautiful or interesting or mysterious. And when that's a person, it feels, um, it doesn't feel right. It feels kind of nasty in some ways to me. But a project that is making me question that a lot is um, Gregory Halpern's new book or newer book, Zizix, especially because it's all photographs in Los Angeles. There's some really amazing portraits in there that make me feel all kinds of emotions. Like, I don't know if I feel really good about them or not, but they're incredibly captivating and work really well with the Los Angeles landscape and kind of fleshing out things that I'm really interested in in terms of the, the mystery, the facade, and the, the the weird and wonderful parts of of that city 
I think you just dress up your child as different Disney characters. and. Oh, well, that's what my father did. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, so my Christmas cards all growing up would use my Halloween costume, which would often reference Disney. Before they manufactured them, my mom would make them. And then before Photoshop, my dad would photograph me in the costume, enlarge it, cut me out with an X-Acto knife, paint a backdrop wow. like airbrushed backdrop oh we need to see these. yes and then yeah. where are these <laughs> it was one of the th- few things my mother grabbed when they were like a, a block from the evacuation zone a couple weeks ago and piled oh, up the car good for her yeah so oh, they're everybody? their family treasure is everybody okay is the house okay? oh yeah everything's fine oh, okay. the the wind was blowing um in the opposite direction of mm-hmm. m- myself, my family, and most of the people I know, but it's still very devastating yeah. um, what's happening out there. Yeah. Well, you mentioned going through uh, Helmut Newton, uh, <laughs> going through uh, Cindy Sherman, yep. and uh, and then another big influence I think we should talk about would be Stephen Shore, right? Yeah. Who also has a retrospective up right now at MoMA. Yeah, I'm really looking. That's where I'm going next. Uh-huh. So. And so how did you come across Stephen's work, do you think? I came across Stephen's work, oh, likely second semester of my freshman year of undergrad when we did color, um, color darkroom photography. I'm sure he was in like the slideshow. And it wasn't until my third year at NYU that my friend Nick, who I mentioned before, Nick Halcott, introduced me to the Olympus stylic, sty- the Olympus stylus epic point and shoot 35 millimeter camera and I wasn't taking any photography classes when I studied abroad in the UK but I took that camera and I shot more than I had ever shot in my life it's a very sought after camera I know right (laughs) I feel I I feel pretty cool that we got a couple and then alongside Stephen Shore was Martin Parr as and also being in in the UK and I've always gravitated towards photographs that have a sense of humor as well, and as dark as that can go. Often the darker the better. So Stephen Shore and Martin Parr, like in undergrad, really, I, I, I looked and collected their books, looked at and collected their books often. Your work does have that deadpan humor to it. Thanks. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I... I think I wrote this in my application for Columbia that my dad often told me that what movies are lacking is they don't have they don't have enough jokes. Hmm. And so I think it's an important thing to keep in mind for life in general and like especially now where things seem to be at their darkest in a lot of ways. I think some of the best art that I'm seeing right now in response to the current political climate has a really dark sense of humor and is looking at it through that lens. Also could explain your attraction to Brett, your husband. (laughs) He's definitely, if anything, uh, a hilarious human being. Thank you very much. What does he do? Um, He's a writer and um, mostly uh, TV and film, but he does a lot of projects that are internet-based, one of which is a Instagram account where he collects images from from the from the vastness of the internet that are really dark in in their humor. Um, he also does a comic called 
where he, t- where he takes New Yorker cartoons and then makes all of the text about divorce. I thought you were going to say he makes them funny. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, um, he also just wrote what I think is the best thing he's done as a, a zine. It's a 24 short uh, erotic stories. Oh. And um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty fantastic. Hmm. A lot of your, I'd say, your photographs seem like landscapes as still life, right? Oh, thank you. Because That's you're, cool. Yeah, right? Because <laughs> you're, ex- the, it's, I mean, we're always extracting, but you're very often not concerned with giving the viewer a sense of exactly where they are or what they're looking at. That Absolutely. There's, there's like, then there's often several different pieces like in a still life being brought together for a humorous effect or, mm-hmm. or something else, right? So yeah. it does have that kind of feeling to it, which... Uh, you know, I can see the influence of Stephen Shore, but, uh, you know, I think there's something else there. Thanks. That's the thing I think I'm most, I get most excited about with photography is what you can hide from the viewer and how you can frame your work to make it something that is uh, very specific or might not be seen just passing by. And I think... I've you know I've tried many times to make studio or make still lives in the studio, and they always feel very contrived. But it's something that I'm continuing to to experiment with because again, like practice, practice, practice. Mm. But one of the things that was most frustrating for me in studio visits in graduate school was how often people would want to know where the photographs were taken. Oh yeah, and it's just such a conundrum with photography you know and and i understand the the want to know that information although why you're gonna go visit it i mean exactly (laughs) you want to go there yourself or exactly (laughs) it's just like the satisfaction of knowing (laughs) the truth i guess for whatever that means to you yeah it has a lot to do with that that built-in idea that this this must have really been there where was that it must still be there right it also is a in some ways, a, a, a way of trying to warm up to some kind of intelligent conversation about a photograph mm-hmm. for some people who can't right. figure out how to start or what to say. Right. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that like, if I could give advice for what it's worth to anyone who is going to graduate school, I think I didn't take that into consideration when people were coming into my studio. And I felt like there was this authority that everybody had who was walking through the door and that they obviously know way more than I do. And that's why I'm here, is to learn from these masterful people who are very knowledgeable. But when you're in a multidisciplinary program, that's not always the case. So I think, you know, to be like confident in what you're doing and where you're coming from and what you know about the work and thinking about what they might not know about the medium is, is important. Yeah, and that... That does take um, experience and maturity to figure out because we've all done it. We've all, you know, someone yeah. walks in, they say something like, well, you don't know shit. Why, yeah. why are you even here? Right? right, right. But if you can somehow remain open and gently guide them to a better conversation, yeah. that's a skill that will come in handy down the road. Yeah. Absolutely. And I feel so grateful now that, you know, having gone to graduate school, I can apply like the best of the kind of group critique and studio visit to the, a new community that I found in Los Angeles. And it's a working title, but I've just formed like a ladies photo league with two of my 
um, new friends in LA who are both photographers. Is that what it's called? That's what that's what's called <laughs> for now. Our second okay. our second meeting is Thursday, and there's we're three strong. But uh, Chelsea Mosher, my, one of my friends out there, is working entirely in the dark room, and I think that's a little unusual, at least in my experience, to find another woman who's working exclusively in the dark room. So I'm really excited and fueled by this new relationship and conversation. You have color work as I well. Do. And is, is that digital or is that uh, traditional? It's a mixture, but mostly mostly negative based. More, more recently, um, medium format. But I think I even contacted you because when I moved into my classroom, oh, yeah. I had a Nikon super cool scan. Yes. But it is, it is sadly um, not working. And um, I think we'll require a uh, maybe an impossible uh, repair. So I I just felt frustrated by that process. And then I shoot like a little with a DSLR. I shoot a lot with my phone. But I, I wasn't having the kind of satisfaction anymore with actually processing the work, right? I just like sitting in front of a computer. And when I have this beautiful dark room, I'm now working pretty much entirely in black and white. Mm. So it seems to me that one way that since the work, you don't reference, uh, even though a lot of the places you photograph, I would say, are the places that like the new topographics photographers are looking at, you know, mm -hmm. this kind of that part of the West and uh, yeah. the artificialness. But their looks are very much, you know, sort of from a distance and making it look like these cookie cutter things. And, mm -hmm. and you're much more looking at the quirky stuff. But then there is this thing of like, all right, well, what is what's this photograph about? Uh, the, you know, the right. humor comes across, but, you know, what am I, you know, what am I looking at? You know, what is this about? And one of the ways that uh, you've been trying to give form to that to help people like understand it is working in this kind of zine format mm -hmm. or working in books you want to talk about I know you talked earlier about your influence right after you graduated but you want to talk about uh, you know putting these books together as we learned the other day we should call them uh, soft cover photo books or something yeah, instead soft of cover zines. booklets yeah I don't, I don't know whatever <clears throat> I feel like zines have to have text you know, you have to be like communicating a radical idea or something. I'm just and doing that through images, I guess. And they used to have to be like low production quality usually right. too, right? Yeah. Like Xerox and And stuff. I'd like to, th yeah, like to think I'm working like slightly elevated. But it mainly came from this uh, feeling like after graduate school that I wanted to like complete a project in a timely manner and be able to like have a have uh, something to show for what I've been making and also to like stay in conversation with um, my peers and being able to make a small booklet and send it off to someone as like a as like a gift or a conversation starter felt like the right way to be working and I was also thinking about that in graduate school during my thesis like making images that were tangible that you could hold that weren't necessarily uh, fixed on the wall behind glass so yeah, I've made two, one color and one black and white. And I think also it, for lack of a better description, feels like a poem or a short story. I'm a much more avid reader of short fiction than I am of long form fiction. I'm not a great reader. Um, but <laughs> so I found that the short story is the, is the right, is the sweet spot for me. And um, George Saunders is a huge favorite of mine. And so I, I like to 
I think about his work a lot when I'm putting together a series of photographs and the way that he tells stories that at least in the way that I interpret them, I often feel like my photographs and that they're not revealing the entirety of the location and that the place in which a lot of these um, stories uh, take place, they're really weird, quirky, surreal, dark, and some place in America usually, but not specific. And so I think that that's what I try to put together in these books with my work as well. How do you um, share them? Oh, well, you know, my, my husband's like, well, you have to sell them because you have, you know, <laughs> I mean, my parents too, I guess. And I feel like there's, yeah, so I, I sell them, but I also give them as gifts or I trade. Mm -hmm. I don't um, see them on your, your site, your website. No, I didn't get that done in time. Okay. <laughs> but maybe by the time this podcast airs, I'll have um, made those updates to my okay. website. Yeah. Goals. Yes. New Year's right. goals. goals. That's right. It's one of those th things about being pregnant. It's like, especially right now, I have a lot of energy for the most part. And then there's certain days where I'm just like, nope, yeah. nothing, nothing's happening today. So <laughs> it's a good reminder, Michael. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, speaking of collaborations and wanting to get your work out there, do you want to talk uh, about your A New Nothing conversation? Oh, yeah. So I have an ongoing conversation on the New Nothing website, which I also really love to use as a teaching tool um, when my students are writing about photographs because there's so many there. And one of the prompts that I give my students is to find something that they think is really confusing and like try to figure out what, what, it, what it's about. So I work with um, Ariel Goldberg, who's also one of my NYU friends, really early um, colleagues, and they're uh, an artist and poet and photographer. Um, Ariel and I have had similar interests in terms of our, the content, the things that we photograph for many years now. So they're someone that I turn to often um, and probably first when I, I when I want to get some feedback on my work. So I really enjoy our conversation. And then also next month, I'll have it on my website uh, <laughs> where I'm going to be in a group show in Glendale, California, if anyone's out that way, which is where I live now within L.A. Um, at my friend Nina Schwantz's house, she's turning her house into a gallery for a couple of months, at least the living room space and perhaps the backyard space. And that's going to be called Home Alone. Um, <laughs> so details <Yes>. forthcoming. <laughs> Very, so L.A. Hollywood reference. <laughs> yes. It can't get away from it. It's too good. It's too good. And also, like, just after the holidays, mm -hmm. you know. So, so Nate, you, you do have experience, East Coast, West Coast. Do you, um, do you sense a, a difference in the sort of the energy and the kinds of work people show and the photographers you meet mm -hmm. and conversations mm -hmm. you have? Yes and no. I think part of that is because I m moved back to L.A., at a time when a lot of people from New York are moving to LA. So I feel like there's become a big influence of, you know, for lack of a better description, the like Williamsburg crowd, you know, being mm. priced out or Greenpoint and um, moving west. And that, and I was a part of that. However, I think that with space comes the ability to 
breathe. (laughs) (laughs) And I think some stereotypes are true that people are a bit more relaxed and chill. And at least when I first started going to openings and, and art gatherings, when I moved back, I felt like there was a more familial, like, People were more open and kind in terms of like meeting new people, and it felt less competitive. That's shifting. Yeah. I also don't go out much, but I also like that in LA you can really kind of hide too, hmm. in a good way. Like you can you can be doing doing your own thing and then choose to like meet up and share and. I don't know if that's necessarily a New York thing because you're living on top of each other, but also it was like a graduate school thing. And I think I mentioned this at the camera club that I felt like the last two years in New York when I was at Columbia, I felt like I was in a fishbowl and every everyone was looking at what I was doing. I was looking at what everyone else was doing and we were really in each other's space. So it felt really competitive and frenzied. And now I feel like I can just do my own thing. Hmm in a very relaxed way, which is nice. The, the first time I visited California, I was in a store and a woman asked me to slow down. Whoa, I was speaking man. too fast. Slow down, man. <laughs> that also happened to me in Baltimore once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, there's something to be said. It's so disgusting that everybody has a car and like what it's doing to the earth and traffic and everything, it's disgusting. But for selfish reasons, it is like really lovely to commute in your own little bubble after having commuted on the subway. Huh. Um, so I feel a bit guilty about that, but I will enjoy it. Get yourself an electric car. Yes, and they'll be um, <laughs> they'll be driving themselves That's soon, right. and you know, God only knows <laughs> what's going to happen in a few years. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for thank coming you. in with your your voice and everything else and yes uh thank you listeners for listening to my voice (laughs) in its current state thank you usually it's three octaves higher you know (laughs) (laughs) oh boy (laughs) now we'll 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 call in later and see what your voice really sounds like just auto-tune it oh that's what we'll do (laughs) yeah this has been great yeah (laughs) perfect (laughs) all right thanks all right bye everyone (laughs) 